Stop the scroll. It kind of fuels the fire in some of these mental health issues that we're seeing. Social media for kids in the crosshairs. From 13 to 19, they're using social media to target other kids. Protecting the children or government overreach. We're here to be leaders. We're the future. And social media allows us to connect with people from all around the world. I'm in my property. You on my property. Who polices the police? All those complaints of quote unquote misconduct. The state stepping in. Because it doesn't provide the law enforcement officers with due process. They are entitled to protect their own constitutional rights. Community oversight on the line. They increase trust with communities, especially black community people of color, with the law enforcement. Plus, a lot on the plate for the roundtable. The big news of the week and the big newsmakers all live this week in South Florida. Morning. Welcome. I'm Glenna Milberg. First question for this hour. Can Florida lawmakers do what parents and teachers may not be able to do? Get the kids off social media. This way, this week, the House passed a bill to ban young people under 16 from social media platforms. Living online has become much a part of life for young people as TV and telephone were to their parents but comes with a whole set of mental health related issues that TV and telephone never did. Is it government's role to manage that or to ban it? Social media use for minors is House Bill number one and one of the House Speaker's priorities. Florida House Speaker Paul Renner right here with us live today. Mr. Speaker, great to have you on the program. Great to be with you. I'm glad you uh, set aside some Sunday for us because this bill is really being talked about, raising a lot of eyebrows. Um, and, and I want to get right to the essential part of it because this bill really does target the addictive components of social media platforms. And I wonder if you would kind of take us through that social media as an, as an addiction for, for young people. Right. And so the Internet under this bill is still mostly wide open for kids under 16. But what we know about some of the social media platforms is that they were designed to be addictive. And then years into this experiment, we've learned that it's extremely harmful for many kids. We know from the Surgeon General that kids that spend three hours or more on social media are twice as likely to suffer depression. And the st a national study from the CDC shows that almost one in three high school girls have contemplated suicide in the last year. And you see a direct correlation globally between the advent of these social media platforms and those mental health harms to children. And so what we've said is, look, all that these platforms have to do is take away those addictive components, those little dopamine hits that they give people with notifications and hearts and likes and infinite scrolling and create a kids safe platform. They refuse to do it because it's extremely lucrative. It means they can get kids on the platform and keep them there longer. When you say they refuse to do it, can you detail for us which platforms, which managements you've spoken to, what you've asked, and what they have, in your words, refused to do? Well, we don't even have to ask because we, the Wall Street Journal did an investigation recently that showed that these social media platforms know uh, that kids can't get off the platforms. They know that they create harm to them. And yet they've made statements that say we have to ha keep the teens because if we lose the teens, we lose the pipeline. 
every business, you know, markets to teenagers and young people in their 20s because you create a customer at that age, you get them for life. And that's really what's happening at a time under 16 when our kid's brain is not fully developed. We don't let kids get behind the wheel of a car. Some can drive just fine, but we know that their brain is just not at the point where that's the safe thing to do. So this bill is about mental health, and I, I should say it's it's a bipartisan ish bill. Um, there have been there have been some there has been I should say some opposition, but it is you do have a bipartisan uh, uh, field of people aboard on this relative to the mental health aspects of it. Um, but I wonder if this particular. It, in this session and last session and even the session prior, parental rights really has been a headline of so many of the bills. Is this venue of social media better for a parent or family to deal with with their respective kids other than government? Well, it, it's very bipartisan. Let me just say this first. All Republicans and a majority of Democrats in the caucus supported it. It was 106 to 13, mm -hmm. so pretty widely bipartisan. And on the issue of parents' rights, you know, we don't let kids smoke or drink or vote or get married under a certain age, and as I said, get behind the wheel. There are certain things that we say are inherently harmful. And again, here, with an addictive platform that is monetizing children to billions of profits that we know creates them harm is something that we just can't leave to um, parents that are very busy. And once they get on the platform, they're spending hours and hours with total strangers without any kind of parental oversight. So this is just one a class of those issues that we take outside uh, parental decisions. And in fact, I believe will empower parents to give them back the influencing role that belongs to moms and dads about what their kids uh, bring into their lives. You make a really interesting point about children not being able to drive, uh, gamble, smoke, and those kind of things. Um, and. I'm thinking of those particular components of parts of life that you choose or don't choose to do. The internet has become, especially for the generation under us and following, the internet is so much part of the fabric of their lives that that's, not, that's almost not a choice in some respects. So how do you police I guess the onus would be on the platforms. Is that right? If if I'm reading the bill right, the onus is on the platforms. Right. It allows non-governmental third-party age verification platforms that, that can do this pretty in a pretty sophisticated way to verify and uh, make sure that it's age that the people under that age do not get an account. Uh, parents for kids that already have an account can get them off the account, and so that's how it would function and uh, and and do so in a, in a way that protects data privacy. And what would be the consequences? Well, there's um, a private cause of action if a kid is allowed onto a site and some harm comes to them, a parent could bring a claim. Uh, it also allows the attorney general to engage with these platforms if they're continuing to present these addictive features and not following the law and verifying that kids underage are on their platforms. But again, I think the simple thing here, and you asked about the crux of the matter, the crux of the matter is tomorrow that these platforms could just take away these addictive components, create a kid-friendly version of those platforms, and everything that they do now, they could do there, but they won't do it because, again, it keeps them on the platform for hours and hours and hours, which makes it wildly profitable. And so the platforms will continue to up offer up window dressing, but they will never do what is the simple thing to do to get out from under what we're aiming at, which is this addictive technology.
Understood. I think, um, to your point, I think adults experience that addictive technology in some respects, too. I want to bring up the, the sort of positive side of the Internet for a lot of kids. And I will say I've heard from when, when we kind of put this out that we'd be discussing this today. We've heard some, some from some parents and other people. And I want to, while we do this, put up a tweet, which I know you won't be able to see, but I'll describe it to you. It's from someone, a 13-year-old named DJ Marley. Um, she, okay, we don't have that tweet. But anyway, DJ Marley is a 13-year-old from Broward County who uh, does not know we'd be talking about her today, but she was one of the people who said, this is my business. She's DJed for the Dolphins and, and different components and other kids who are actors or models or have their sort of early career stages totally on social media and this is their venue to promote themselves. Is there a carve out for people like that? Well, there is, because if you look at those profiles, you'll see, you know, account by mom or account by dad. And so there's nothing to prevent the the person that made that tweet from working with their parents to continue to sell widgets or do do whatever they do as a matter of raising money in a, in a business. So it's not aimed at that, um, but uh, it is aimed at platforms, again, that are addictive uh, and, and, and but doesn't preclude many, many applications on the Internet that kids can continue to use because they're not addictive. Uh, one more question or two more questions on this because practically speaking there, there actually is not a Senate side yet so TBA on the Senate bill I suppose but the the legal ramifications we're sort of seeing possibilities in uh, Arkansas and Utah have very similar laws both challenged Utah's laws is being challenged right now uh, the Arkansas law banning social media for minors similar but not exact the courts blocked that so how how do you feel like this bill as written will pass legal muster? Well, the First Amendment protects content and this bill does not aim at all at content. Once once you get on the site, you can say and do anything you, you please, but it just simply targets certain criteria on a platform, all of which have to be true. And if any one of those things are changed by the platforms, they immediately uh, can open accounts for minors. And so again, this is a about whether the platforms want to move away from addictive technology, uh, which which I'm sure they do not want to do because it's so profitable. And so that's that's really the, the short answer to that question. Speaker Renner, while we have you, um, I'd love to just throw out a couple of questions about what people identify to us as their A number one issue with the state, and that is, you want to guess? Property insurance. Affordability. <laughs> Property insurance and, and housing affordability continue to be just anecdotally what people talk about all the time. The um, Right now, there are several new insurers in the state. The reforms passed in the past couple of years targeting mostly lawsuits, tort reform, and, um, and home hardening have not yet, practically speaking, resulted in lower premiums yet. What's on tap for this session? Well, we're going to continue our work, and we did a lot um, with respect to Wild West litigation. The result of that has been a record number of new insurers coming into the market at a time when before that legislation, people were going bankrupt and leaving the market in droves. Nobody wanted to be in Florida. That's now changed in a dramatic way. And so all the things we would hope to see initially we're seeing. But much like a cruise ship, you know, and I was in the Navy, when you when you have a cruise ship that's going this way in a bad direction and you turn the rudder over to turn it back in the right direction, it takes a little time. And so, but we're witnessing the things that would show the ship coming around. It just hasn't come around to the point where we see drops in rates, but we do see 
encouraging signs, even in the rate structures for some for some areas. And we hope to continue to see that in the future. Now, what are we doing this year? We're looking at another area, which is mitigation. So we have a program called My Safe Florida Home, which gives up to $10,000 if you get an inspection and someone says, look, you can do this with your windows, or your garage doors, or roof tie downs, the state will offer up as much as $10,000 to help you get that done. So that if a hurricane does come, instead of having a $100,000 claim, maybe the claim's only $10,000. We have to do that across the state, make sure we're hardening our homes, building them strong. And when we do that, we'll see that have a really positive effect because lower claims across the board mean lower rates. And competition is still going to be alive and well, and insurers will not be able to maintain high rates when others that are coming into the market are willing to lower their rates. Has the My Safe Florida home, has that been, the funding has been replenished? Because I know a couple of months ago that that was running very low. It, it turned out to be a pretty popular program. Right, yeah, it was oversubscribed. So we came into a special session for this purpose to make sure we're giving this to anybody that wants it. We did that in special session. We're in the budget talks now for the next fiscal year. So we intend to plus that up. The Senate president has a great idea to make sure that we're giving front of the line privileges to people who are on fixed income, those who don't have a lot of money to make sure they get that on a first come first serve basis. But we really wanna make sure this is available to everyone except those on the very top of the income ladder so that they can make sure to harden their homes against hurricanes that we know have been around since Florida was Florida and will continue. But if we reduce those claim amounts when the hurricane does hit, it will protect our homes and also lower rates for everyone. House Speaker Paul Renner, great to have you on the program. Sure appreciate your time. Great to be with you. Take care. Bye -bye. When we come back, policing the police, Will the state trump South Florida civilian oversight? That debate with those on the front lines is next. Who oversees the police is a central question under scrutiny at the state level. Currently, an alphabet soup of several agencies have roles in that, and in some South Florida cities, so do independent civilian panels put in place to foster trust in the community that the fox is not watching the hen house. But a state bill would do away with that and ban those civilian panels. What do you think? Some input today from two people on the front lines. Rodney Jacobs is the executive director of Miami's Civilian Investigative Panel. And with us via Zoom, Stedman Stahl is president of the South Florida Police Benevolent Association, representing police in Miami-Dade and Monroe counties. And Stedman, I guess we should tell everyone you're on Zoom because you are in Las Vegas, because you have yes. a national board meeting of some sort, not because you're playing the slots. Or maybe you are. No, no. <laughs> Well, welcome and welcome to you in the studio, Ronnie. I want to give Thanks, you the Doris. first question because um, there are 21 civilian investigative panels in the state of Florida and each of them govern their own municipality or city. So why did they matter? Why do they matter when there's the state attorney's office and the U.S. attorney's office and the FBI and the AG and grand juries? Why, what do civilian panels do that they don't? 
Yeah, well, Glenna really, I think the main component of the work that we do is really to act as a, a mouthpiece and a, a voice for the voiceless in the community. Over the last few years, we've seen it, especially in Miami, post George Floyd, a lot of people from the community utilizing our offices that are not just civilians, but police officers as well. So we are able to take in information to uh, collaborate both with the police department and the community in order to do our work effectively. Uh, to put this into a simple phrase, it's procedural justice. It's the notion that in order for the police department to operate well and effectively, the community needs to trust the law enforcement. Are you saying that the community does not trust these other governmental agencies that do investigations? Oh, I'm not, not necessarily. Um, I can say from the work that we've done and from the intake that we've had with members of the community, that trust is built and bolstered through the work that we do. A lot of times, especially when you're talking about criminal allegations, when it's a state attorney or FDLE, a lot of the civil components when we talk about discourteousness and improper procedure gets fought by the wayside. So Stedman, I, I know um, you're listening to this and I know, yes. you know, you, um, you are all about doing the right thing for your police officers. Why would this component, which sounds like even if it's a perception in the community of fairness, w what's wrong with that? Problem with these, uh, there's a lot of different three letter uh, there are ICPs, independent review boards. The problem is there's no uniform standard for them. Who sits on them, how they investigate, what they do. And it's second guessing officers that have seconds to make decisions and stuff like that. These boards have become very divisive. Uh, it's an us against them mentality, They feel, we feel like, and uh, we haven't been supportive of it. So we do support this, uh, these, this bill that's being filed right now to do away with them. Because until you, you would never have a doctor being second guessed by an electrician or a plumber. Lawyers are not second guessed by people that aren't familiar with the construction trade. You want people that are familiar with it. So, on, so the, on, on the board, I want to let Rodney just describe who the board members yeah. that you have, plumbers and electricians, who's, who's on the board? <laughs> well, it, I think what Stemmon is doing is, is he's parsing two, two notions. Um, we have a professional staff that are former law enforcement individuals that have uh, worked in the military as well that do the investigations uh, into the police department. Obviously, these are career professionals who have done this work. That's how we have our legitimacy. The individuals that hear the cases are members of the community. There's doctors, there's lawyers. Uh, there's individuals that take in the investigations that we present to them in order to understand what went on in the situation. So when, when Stedman says these are people who are not law, in law enforcement, in his words, second guessing what police do, that that's a legitimate question? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that allows us to have a collaborative conversation. I think when you look at any industry that's in public or public safety or a public official, their counterbalance that are the people. Uh, last time I checked, Glenna, most people uh, don't commit crimes directly in front of a police officer. So in order for the community and the police to have that interaction that helps bolster law enforcement, that helps bolster public safety, we need individuals from the community to trust in that process. Stedman, the, you had mentioned, and, and this actually is one of the arguments for the bill, is that, to your point, there is no uniformity among these different cities, CIP. But in the bill, there is no uh, proposal for a uniform method. Should there be? That's, that, it, it's very complex, but we have something here in Miami-Dade County called the Civilian uh, Relations Board. And those are people that come out when situations are happening uh, right then and there. They're, they're out there to dispel some false rumors. Sometimes you'll get police agitators that just want to, no police at all, and they're going to make up a false narrative 
where we can get people that live in those communities, not from another part of the, uh, the counties, or but they're there to dispel it or, or address it. So there is no uniform standards. And, and, and so when you're going to create the boards, we had one up in Tallahassee where the uh, civilian review board member is walking around with a coffee cup with a pretty uh, offensive comment about the police walking around. And, and, and that's the person that's going to judge us. And the other problem with these boards are who's watching them? Who, who watches the watchers? They want total independent, independent uh, coverage, but who's watching to make sure that they're doing it right? And I can certainly tell you, you know, the ones that I've had to deal with, I would deal with them with Key West, North Miami, uh, in Miami-Dade County, and we do represent some city Miami officers. I, I don't see a need for this. Uh, when ha Most of the public don't even know they even exist. Um, I want to give Rodney a chance to, to respond. Yeah, well, two things okay. about the universal standards. At the end of the day, at least in the city of Miami, I can say, we enforce the standard that the police department sets for itself, right? The, the police department creates their departmental orders. The police department creates the standards of which they want to be governed by. And simply what we do is we hold them to the standard that they have set. Now, every police department around the state, Glenna, has their own departmental orders because policing is regional. Those review boards look at those standards that they have created, and they hold them to that standard. Now. Why those things vary is because every police department varies. How, how many cases would you say, ballpark it for yeah. me, has your CIP really chastised a police officer who had not been brought to what you would have considered justice prior yeah. to? I, I would say it, it's probably roughly 10%. Most of the cases that we get, we're exonerating police officers. And the chances that we do sustain uh, individual police misconduct, those are uh, collaborations with internal affairs and other city agencies so that we get to the truth of the matter. Stedman, there, I was watching the committee meeting for one of these bills and someone had gotten up and said that they were afraid that with communities that have these civilian boards, a police recruit would just as soon go elsewhere. Have you had any legitimate reason to think that there have not been police recruits applying to Miami, Miami-Dade, Monroe because of the CIP? It's one of the factors, not the only factor, but it's, there is a, a truly a, a trouble hiring police officers. Uh, if, if you're because, driving in Miami because of County, this, because of this it, issue, I think it's the second guessing, and a lot of this all came about because of this anti-police rhetoric that had taken off two years ago about the defunding and all this nonsense that we saw around the country. And then when you're seeing all these other departments around the country, not here and locally here in South Florida, but the summer of love certainly didn't work out very well for Seattle and New York and Chicago. It's a profession now that people are going to go into. Do I want to get into this? Am I going to go into something I'm going to be second guessed when I have seconds? And I've sat through these things where on discipline hearings where elected officials hit the rewind button nine to ten times to see what happened. I said that officer didn't get to hit the rewind button. They had a second to make the decision. So when you have this, I think the money that's spent on these departments would be better off continuing training, work with the community much, uh, much more, bring them in. And we do it now with these coffees with cops and the cookies with rookies and, the, and those different programs. It's put the money back into uh, training and stuff like that, and we get the same results. And, 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 but we don't need a group of people that are going to second guess that don't know what the level of force 
it was proper or not. Rania, I, I want to give yeah. you about 30 seconds. Yeah, I, I would say that misconception is a little bit erroneous here. Obviously, uh, as Stedman mentioned in his segment prior, most of the public doesn't even know we exist. So how are we keeping people from recruiting? I go to the oh, academy. Oh, I'm sure police <laughs> recruits know you exist. <laughs> not not necessarily. I go to the academy every year and I ask the new recruits how many people know who I am and know my oh. department. It's always radio silence. So it sounds like we, we are going to do more. Stedman Stahl in, in Las Vegas, Ronnie Jacobs here. We're, we'll definitely do more on this. Um, this was about, I want, I urge people to read that bill and, and uh, weigh in. And so we will have you back to discuss more. Appreciate your time. Thank Great you. to have you in. Thank you. Stedman Safe Travels to you. Thank you. All right. Take care. All, All right. right. Up next, we take the big news of the week to the roundtable. Expect the unexpected. We are back. Time to take it all to the round table. Some introductions first. At the table today with us, Rafael Yanis, a Miami-based attorney and political analyst. Marie-Lee Cancio is a community leader and attorney chair of the Greater Miami Expressway. L'Oreal Arscott is an attorney and chair of Miami-Dade's Independent Civilian Panel for the county. Mark Caputo, not an attorney, <laughs> national political reporter at The Messenger covering the campaign trail. And what a campaign trail it has been in the past couple of weeks. So if we can, welcome everybody. Thank welcome you. back. Thank you. I want to start there. Um, the governor's back in the Capitol. He's doing his job. He's doing his job. He's I, I, we resume everyday emails and appearances. Um, I really want to talk to you, though, about something we found on the trail. Uh, Nikki Haley is insisting Donald Trump is not the presumptive nominee <laughs> for the Republican Party. What, what are you seeing? Yeah, haha. -ha. Uh, <laughs> it just, we've never had in history a candidate run for president and win Iowa and New Hampshire as a non incumbent, period. And usually in the Republican primary, if you win one of those two, you wind up becoming the nominee. Donald Trump has won them both. Nikki Haley has lost them both. Nikki Haley is making the argument that if Donald Trump keeps winning, he's going to start losing. And if she continues to lose, she's going to start winning. Well, let me just make the point that we all agree that Donald Trump changes the rules on everything. <laughs> we, we've yes. seen that. Agreed. But, but here we go to South Carolina, which kind of changed the rules for Joe Biden four years ago, just saying. Th this is the first state that, aside from being Nikki Haley state, Mari Lee, it's... It's a state where there is a demographic that's much more diverse than Iowa and New Hampshire. What are we expecting to see there? And we're expecting to see Donald Trump winning South Carolina with the help By of more. Exactly. By more. And I that's think that should be the end of her race. Uh, but she has financial support, she has money, and she wants to keep going in case something happens to uh, President Trump. Well, somebody, somebody weigh in here with um, should she keep going? I think she should, Glenna. I mean, I'm sure that may be unpopular among so. my yeah. Republican friends, but honestly, someone needs to give Donald Trump a run for his money. Um, and I think that there needs to be another candidate to suggest other ideas and opinions. I think it's very concerning and alarming that the reality is Trump may be the Republican nominee. And I, I, that's concerning. He has 91 charges against him. So what's really, what's really important, L'Oreal said the run for the money, Donald Trump has gone on the record saying that anybody who's financially supporting Nikki Haley, anybody who's working for her, will be blackballed from his administration, from government contracts. I mean, he is throwing the kitchen sink, trying to end this as early as possible, cracking the whip and getting people in line. 
precisely people are now donating to Nikki Haley. Just in my sphere, people I never see post on their Instagram about politics, put that article and said, time to donate, and then followed up with a screenshot of their donation receipt to Nikki Haley. You know, I want to just throw out something. We were in New Hampshire at a Donald Trump event last week, and, um, and you know, he's been saying, this is not a political statement. Donald Trump says things that just flat out aren't true. He does. And I walked up the line and I was uh, talking to people and I asked somebody, do you ever fact check what Donald Trump says? And she says, no. If he says it, it's gospel. Gospel's my word, not hers, but that's, she, that was her point. Does that, Marilee, does that concern you? Politics aside, if someone's giving disinformation and that doesn't worry people, does that concern you? Of course it concerns me, Lana, in, obviously. In, in this, uh, in a, obviously. Through the lens of electing a president. Yes, it concerns me, but what we've learned and we've known Donald Trump now for, what, more than eight years is that he will say and do the craziest things, but the way he governed for four years is what I base my opinion of him. It's who was there in the White House, what decisions were taken, how the economy did, how we were secure. That's what I look at. Not what he's saying, it's what he does. In other presidents, they talk very pretty, they say nice things, and then we see the disaster of... What about January 6th? Because a lot of Republicans who are not supporting, in my world, in my sphere, a lot of Republicans who are not supporting Donald Trump look at January 6th and say, I love the economy under him, I hated his tweets. But January 6th was the line that he crossed. Per perception or reality? Which? Which? Perception or, <laughs> Which is, or reality? Well, Donald Trump says things that are not true, clearly. including some of the things he says he accomplished that he did not. And not, that is not a dig on Donald right. Trump, his, it's just his, a fact. His voters don't care. Yes. Uh, Why? And, well, uh, we can get in a long conversation about what's called negative partisanship. That is, Donald Trump is hated by the people who hate me. Donald Trump hates the people who hate me. Therefore, Donald Trump is my guy. And you see the same that phenomenon. Pythagorean theorem. Almost, it's called somehow. negative partisanship, basically. <laughs> like, you know, he's part of my group, I'm with his group. That group is bad because they don't like us. I mean, you see that playing out on both sides. Now, it is true that Donald Trump's um, commitment to the truth is, uh, is, is less committed than anyone we've ever seen occupy the office. Nevertheless, when, when we talk to voters and we look at the polling, which is our best guess as to how things are going, people are tuning out that conversation. They don't care. They're, they're more interested in the things she's talking about. Those who like Donald Trump or who are inclined to vote for him either A, want to vote for him because they like him, or B, don't like Joe Biden or the Democrats and vice versa. So Nikki Haley... I think it's not a matter of not liking Joe Biden, Mark. I think it's just a matter of what has Joe Biden done in the last four years? He's barely standing. He can barely talk. It's someone that it has been a disaster for so many issues. Are you describing issues. Trump or Biden? No, I'm, like I'm describing Trump. Because, because really Biden right. supporters will, will talk right. and point to I Trump. I understand, but I... I but they'll talk about insulin, why is it? It's not me. Right, right, it's right, not right. me. So why is it that Biden is the least liked sitting president, that his approval rating is so low, even worse than Jimmy Carter, even worse than Trump? Not me. That's I an interesting poll. question. I mean, the metrics of the economy right now are actually very good. Mm -hmm. But people so, don't feel like they're very good. That's the problem. When you perception ask, when you ask reality. perception reality. Uh, well, the reality is, is only now are real wages catching up. Inflation still is hurting a lot of people. 
Is it hurting everyone? No. All of our models, though, that we use to measure how good an economy is are based in eras of where there was lower inflation. I'm not saying inflation is Joe Biden's fault, but heavy lies the crown. Yeah, heavy lies the crown. Mm -hmm. um, when we come right back, I want to bring it on home. I really want to talk about L'Oreal. You're actually the chair of the Miami-Dade County civilian. I know it's not civilian investigative panel, but it's the civilian panel. But I want to talk about that and, and that debate when we come right back. Stay tuned. I really wish we had a camera during the commercial breaks here. No. All right, I want to talk about that bill we, we talked about it. L'Oreal, you are the chair of the Miami-Dade County Civilian Investigation, what is it? The Independent Independent Civilian, Civilian, Civilian Panel. Panel. Yes. Um, nevertheless, it's a group from the community overseeing the police, no subpoena power, Right. no real consequences involved. Um, is this a perception board? It's not a perception board. It's a legitimate means for the residences to voice their concerns about their interactions with police officers. It's also an opportunity for the police departments. The community uh, oversight boards serve as a bridge between the community and between law enforcement. So what's missed is people want an opportunity to be heard and they want to be, have an opportunity to address their concerns. Our panel, the CIP that Mr. Jacobs just spoke about, those are boards and opportunities to give the residents exactly what they want. So the residents want it. Do police want it? You know, Stebbins saw the PBA. They don't. They don't want it. So, so I think he's a lone voice in the wilderness that speaks very loudly. Um, well, what's interesting is we had a meeting last week, and this is what I'm going to tell you, Glenna. Our experience with the county's oversight board. You know, for folks who don't realize that Miami-Dade County, we successfully operated a civilian, excuse me, police oversight for nearly 30 years. Yeah. Our board was created in the 1980s, shortly after the Rodney McDuffie. Um, riots. Mm -hmm. Arthur McDuffie, getting my guys confused. Arthur McDuffie riots, right? And everyone knows that McDuffie was our version of Rodney King, mm -hmm. the black motorist who was killed by law enforcement. With no cameras. With no cameras. In the 1990s. And mm -hmm. as a result, there was an uprising and an outcry from the community. And they voiced their dismay and distrust with law enforcement. We operated successfully for nearly 30 years until we were defunded. So when we were brought back into existence, of course, it was because community wanted it and our partners in law enforcement were also at the table and in agreement at that time. Our meeting last week was a great turnout at the Joseph Caleb Center. We had so many police officers, the majors were available. Every step of the way while we've been trying to get back up and running, law enforcement has been supportive of our endeavors. So that's, a, that's an interesting perspective. So here we have, <laughs> you're making I'm face. I'm surprised, yeah. <laughs> yeah um, well, and here we have the state trying to, under the guise of being uniform, uh, this bill would, would take that opportunity away. This Republican legislature has not found any local rule item that they don't want to take away. And it's ironic because there's cognitive dissonance between Republicans always saying that they want to be the party of limited government. And instead, when they're in power, and here we're in a uni-party state, there's one party that rules the state with limited influence from Democrats. And the Republican Party is going after home rule and local rule every chance they get. If a local community wants to ban plastic straws, and that's what the voters of that community want, this Republican legislature said, no, you can't do that. Same with plastic bags. Publix killed that through their legislative maneuvers because those brown plastic bags are famous for Publix. That's a marketing tool for them. Same thing here now. We're now, we're now moving down the row of dominoes because they had so little opposition. Now the question is, what have these panels done that is so offensive that the voters are crying out to the legislature over property insurance? 
as a property owner, I am offended when I see the property insurance market in the state. Renters should be offended because that gets passed down to them okay, by well, the property we're, owners. Okay, well, we're going to operate it. They can do, you know, they have more, more balls in the air at once. That will just kind of operate under, that's how government works. But I, but I want to get the political, uh, <laughs> the political facial expression. Yeah, sorry. Give voice to that. Well, I, I think... Uh, I was surprised that you had said that the uh, police were in support of this because I, this, I was too. this legislation is is brought by. I have to by, tell you our experience here, and I yep. understand the PBA's position and the agenda right. that they're trying to push. Talking points don't make sound policy. So the talking yeah, but points that they do in the legislature, but they right. make for legislation. <laughs> but it's not yeah. trickling down to what's happening in the streets and in the community. Interesting. And the reality here. is here in Miami-Dade mm -hmm. County. That is not our experience. Um, Mr. Jacobs has a great relationship with the city of Miami's police department. Our friends at North Miami Beach, who also has a civilian oversight, they have a great dynamic with their officers, and we have a great dynamic with ours. What makes us interesting is the sheriff is coming, right? The sheriff, uh, the new sheriff in town, is coming. coming. Um, so that put a strain on our, you know, situation, huh. but. Those talking points are farther from the truth. Usually, though, when the, the Florida legislature has gone out of its way to pass anything that the police unions want, including, which we don't have time to discuss here, a law enforcement officer's bill of rights, which enshrines job protections yes. from police that no other union member in any other union can get. We, we've reported on that for yeah. sure. I want to, Mary Lee, I want to get your take on the concept Raphael was talking about preemption, government state government going in and overturning local laws and and I want to get your perspective because as chair of the GMX and I, I'm not sure that's one of the cases but it sure was seen as one of those cases. it was erroneously seen as one of those cases Perception. but it is absolutely not yeah. one of those cases so we are part of the Expressway Act which is statewide and it's separate and apart duly noted what about the government from the state coming in and dictating what locals in their community can do well you know, I'm here listening for the first time about what uh, law enforcement thinks of your panel here in Miami-Dade County, but we have 21 agencies around the state that have different laws, different rules, and I think having uniform laws is beneficial uh, for the state and for law enforcement and supporting law enforcement. And I don't think anyone in the world of civilian oversight would disagree with that. I think the answer, the, the solution should have been to propose just that formal regulated rules that are consistent throughout the state. The answer is not to dismantle something that the voters want. I, actually, we had asked uh, the speaker about that because in, in the bill there is not that rule. We will. Anyway, um, stay tuned. Quick break. We'll be right back. All right, lightning round. We want to just get to the social media bill banning 16 and under in the state. L'Oreal, you were very passionate about that. I did. So this hits very close to home. I was one of those parents who was concerned about my children's use of social media. The problem that I have with this bill is that it takes my right away from me to make the decision. My daughter is an influencer on TikTok. She gets all type of hair products. How old? She's only 13. She gets hair products left and right. I mean, uh, shampoo, conditioner, brushes. She got fake lashes the other day. Uh, she gets money off of this She's endeavor. She's gonna kill you for she talking gets, about this. Oh, no, so she, she makes, makes money. She's gonna make a killing. Well, that's She's making a killing. That's what we were talking about, a carve out for people, who, young, young kids who are legitimately using this for a business. But for the record, the Governor DeSantis is not fully supportive of this, this bill. Right, yes. right. Yeah, so, and so we, have, we have to see how it plays out. I, I'm thinking about, what about non-human accounts, right? And also, let's talk about, the social media, the facial scan or your ID scan and creating a centralized database, 
Republicans historically are against that for things like the Second Amendment and gun registries, and now they're talking about let's do this for social media. If it's exactly. good for the Second Amendment, it's good for the First but that was, Amendment. But that's not in this bill. That's a whole different no. story. It's a different story, no. but it's a, it's a related we companion we bill. We got like four minutes to yeah. talk about it. So much to talk All right. about. <laughs> okay, lightning round switch. Um, Miami-Dade's mayor, Daniela Levienkava, little Bond bombshell in her State of the County address. The commission did not even know she was going to be proposing a bond for $2.5 billion to pay for infrastructure. And she claims it's not going to raise taxes. And exactly. We're all going exactly. to eat cake and lose weight. Yes. That's, that's just crazy. Maybe she's got a plan. Does she have a plan? I don't know. Clearly, we have infrastructure problems. Just let's look at the airport falling apart. We have in, the problem in the What's going to pay for that? Exactly. Well, we pay a lot of taxes. Property values have gone up. You know, there's a lot of money to go around. She really could have reduced taxes. The last go around, she didn't. So I don't want to pay more taxes. Well, okay. So a tax hike is not a tax rate hike. Those are two different things, right? right? right. So a tax rate hike, if property values are really high, is still almost an even it depends on the military zero SM gain. well it depends on the military rate. so for example if your property value goes up but the military rate goes down then your tax bill might stay stable so is that l'oreal is that something that you think taxpayers would go for I infrastructure think we have to hear more of the details because the infrastructure the plan as it was laid out was for infrastructure septic tanks affordable and, housing and affordable housing but how are we actually dividing up that money 2.5 billion sounds like a lot but not so much when we have such a terrible housing crisis in our hands well you know to to be fair the county does put a lot of money into affordable housing programs like right now you know like, one thing we never talk about with affordable housing is change the zoning make it easier for people like uh, who have a garage? They want to convert it and have an extra unit. Or an RV me in Hialeah? I wouldn't go that far, but Which maybe. Is just maybe. But the, I mean, the reality is, is like the zoning laws, setback laws, density laws also limit the use of property in innovative ways to create more units and more density and living and space. The legislature is working on that. And live, it, live it, local. It, right. And, and it, it's very controversial because some people don't want to have a high rise where, where they live, but I think that could alleviate a lot of the problems. So gonna, that's the issue, is whether or not that is actually trickling down to the everyday Joe. You know, right. we saw that the documentary coming out now, um, Liberty City Rising, when we're talking about uh, climate gentrification, the average Joe that needs that affordable housing is not getting them those funds. So it's interesting that you brought that up because we actually invited today Pierre Rutledge, who is the Miami-Dade County Black, Black Affairs Advisory Board Chair. He actually brought that up. It premieres this week. Um, Liberty, Liberty Rising, this movie, documents this revitalization of Liberty Square which has been promoted as everybody moves out, it gets better, it's upgraded, everybody moves and back in. And same families move back in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Channel 10's Louis Geary did Raising Liberty Square. He, he interviewed did. the filmmaker and Thanks the, for the chief protagonist. <laughs> and he does great work. And I recommend everybody go on your website and watch that, that segment because it is important for people to see the, the quick story for folks who don't know, Liberty City, the main area of Liberty City, is some of the highest elevation in Miami-Dade County. 12 feet from sea level. Correct. Yeah. So therefore, the developers are targeting that area. The county is targeting it with affordable housing. So here's the question. Are the people not being brought back in? They're not. They're not. Do you know that? Not, that was statistics in your show. Yeah. That it mm -hmm. was only 100 and something families that were brought back in out of the 200 and something that were displaced. 
And, and is that now or final? That was as of when the story aired last right. week. Right, last week. <laughs> All right, well, we got a lot to talk about in our next episodes of This Week in South Florida. Mark Caputo, Rafael Yanis, Mary Lee, Cancio, L'Oreal, R. Scott, thank you so much thank for you. your time and coming in and laughing with us during the commercial breaks. And thank you so much. Stay tuned. Right. We will be right back. Watch today's interviews or listen to the This Week in South Florida podcast. All you have to do is scan this QR code right there on your screen with your phone, and it takes you right to the This Week in South Florida section of local10.com. We make it very easy for you. You are a very big part of this program. We'd love to hear what you think on any topic in the news. You can connect pretty easily on social media. Find, follow, and reach out at Glenna WPLG. That's Facebook, X, Twitter, Instagram. Pick your poison. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a beautiful Sunday. And remember, do keep in touch.